0: Hey, Metal Dave with you along with my co-host Jason McMaster and welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Today we are going to revisit the year 1980 and uh, while that may sound like a very random topic there's very good reason for us focusing on that year. Um, You could argue that it might be the most essential it might be the year where the most essential hard rock and heavy metal albums were released collectively speaking it was a banner year for hard rock and heavy metal and we'll get into some of the albums that uh that appeared at that time 1980 and uh and we'll discuss uh, all those albums and those bands and it will all make perfect sense at that time. <laughs> 1980. A lot, of, a,
1: lot of, a lot of things happened in 1980. Uh things that we won't even get to that that haven't even just entered the focus yet. Yeah. People are going to realize once we bring start this uh you know fill the pool with water, people are going to realize, "Oh wow." Yeah. 1980. A lot of aha moments, yeah.
0: It was it was a banner year for hard rock and heavy metal, and and we'll get into all that, and you'll find out why uh, here in just a few minutes. But uh, first, as usual, Jason, what's on your radar this week? What are you listening to, reading, watching? What's going on?
1: Um, I uh, I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for asking. I um, you know, it's the same. I'm still trying to write songs and uh, and finish up songs that have been on the back burner and things like that. But, you know, w- one of the things that uh, I'm uh, thinking about doing is what shall I do with cassette tapes I do not listen to anymore? <sighs> I have...
0: What do you I, have, 8 million
1: I, of them? I, I don't have as many as I used to have. <laughs> Uh, some of them are actually missing. There's, um, I had this like wooden wine box with a a clasp on it that you open this, you know, you know, wine, this wooden wine box that fit like about, I don't know, about 20 cassettes in it. Like perfect. Perfect. Yeah. You know, in their cases. And I had Metallica, No Life Till Leather demo in there. I had all these live Megadeth and Exodus shows. I had uh early demos from Majesty, which became Dream Theater. I had it was where I put the creme de la crop.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that's been missing not recently, but it's been missing for years. And I the older I get, I try to I still rack my brain and punish myself and try to figure out (laughs) what the hell might've happened to that. Yeah. But you move so many times and then, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. But I've got, um, I've got some things that when you kind of think about it, there were probably only 50 of them ever made. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Things like that. Yeah. And and then there's some things that are there's ten of them probably only made and I was the lucky sod that got one,
0: <laughs> and whether I've
1: pressed play on it or not, right? Yeah. And I keep looking over to my right because that's where I keep most of them. But you know, uh, you know when you demo a song, when you have like a sketch idea of a song, you. It, the air I come from, it was cassette tapes, whether it was in a little four track recorder or just a boom box that had a mic on it that you press record and, and you just gave it a go. And that was your reference that yeah. was your sketch of your song idea. I have so much of those. I've probably got five records worth of material, like dangerous toys songs unreleased. And, Uh-oh uh godzilla motor company songs and broken teeth songs and uh yeah the uh-oh is like uh oh uh yeah keeps going so it well, now
0: you're gonna get a million questions about when is all that stuff being released no, so. though
1: uh, most of it's terrible and it would have been released already <laughs> that's my answer so they just they can stop typing now yeah <laughs> And the pump some people would say, Well, let us be the judge of that. I said, nope. You, nope.
0: It's gotta pass your test first, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I I'm the one that has to sing the
0: shit. Right. And live with it. So Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: kind of how <laughs> that works. But um, you know, I'm just trying to I'm not in the middle of cleaning house, but it feels like it when I look over there. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I need to do something with that. Um, it's just hard. I'm sure everybody knows what that's like when there's something uh you know w- when when do you throw away your gi joe collection <laughs> i still haven't right? thrown it's mine a- away right well see what i mean it's, <laughs> it's the same kind of thing <laughs> what about you what's going on
0: oh so the other night i was thumbing through my record collection as i'm uh, prone to do from time to time and uh, i like revisiting albums i haven't heard in a long time and the winner the other night was black sabbath's born again oh
1: yeah you remember
0: that one is that uh 83 it is 83
1: yeah
0: and it's ian gillen on lead yeah. vocals and it was the album that came out after ronnie james Dio had left the band and this is
1: gonna play into our show today a
0: little bit it will yeah it sure will um born again is uh, it's one of those albums that fans i think have learned to appreciate over the years i think it was kind of viewed as a disappointment when it first came out um i think the band and critics maybe weren't too kind to it when it was first released but i think it's the kind of album that people have grown to appreciate over time, I was fine with it when it first came out. I thought it was a pretty cool record, and I thought uh having Ian Gillen fronting Black Sabbath was was pretty cool i mean you could you could do a lot worse as far as lead singers go well um, it makes
1: it makes sense being uh the the history you know they had just like Dio had just gone solo yeah, yeah, yeah so they think you got to think like that too. It's like okay well we'll the singer for Deep Purple is going to replace the singer for Rainbow. It's a no-brain.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: In is Black that, Sabbath. In Black, that, Black that, Sabbath. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's, that's a trip. Yeah. It's a very important record, I think, Born Again.
0: It, it's a good one. I mean, it's got Trashed. It's got Zero the Hero. It's got uh, Digital Bitch, Disturbing the Priest. Uh, oh, that's great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, somebody— I read somewhere and I never gave this any thought, but uh, it makes it kind of makes sense if you listen. Um, I read somewhere or heard somewhere somebody say that the riff from uh, Zero the Hero is very, very, very similar to the riff uh, to Guns N' Roses Paradise City. Yep,
1: I knew you were going to say that
0: yeah the the
1: uh the Sabbath version of course is came first
0: and yeah it's sludgier it's slower so yeah um, no can't
1: I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain about that
0: yeah no, it's, it's just one of those things that yeah. I would have I would have never thought about it, but it was brought to my attention, and I was like, oh, now, yeah, I could hear that. I can hear that. Yeah, there's a, uh, a lot of riffs like that. I, uh, anyway, enjoyed revisiting that album, and I also want to point out the album cover. That's another thing that often gets uh, criticized, and I think that Demon Baby, that, that glowing red-pink demon baby on that bright purple background i think it's really cool
1: (laughs) well you're not the only one i have a lot of friends that absolutely love that record and it's a bummer it almost makes you feel um like guilty to read articles where ian gillan is like no pun intended trashing the record (laughs) Ian Gillen's like, oh, that's just crap. I hated every moment of that. It's the worst. That was such a nightmare. Blah, blah, blah. He's just like blasting the crap out of that record. And meanwhile, you know, Joe Blow's wearing a Born Again shirt going, it's my favorite record. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. It's I like read, going
1: to a meet and greet, and the only record you bring is Born Again, and Ian Gillen's gonna sign it, and he's going, ah, I'm not gonna sign that. He's like, Why in didn't the, you in bring the, Deep Purple? And the fan is in the fan is stand there like,
0: Dude, uh,
1: <laughs> wow, yeah, right. it, it was it kind of like that, but that's okay. He can he can. I'd rather him be honest and go, Yeah, we had fun. And you know, if it was a bad bad moment for him, that's fair that he's being straight up. But it's interesting
0: yeah i mean i think uh the band members and people that have better ears than i do uh they kind of rag on the production of the album and uh as i think maybe that's part of his beef with it i because i've read when he joined the band he was thrilled to be you know teaming up with iomi and and geezer i mean they'd crossed paths many times they were friends over the years they they were party buddies hence the song trashed and uh so I think he went into it uh, having a great time and enjoying the process and maybe wasn't so happy with the outcome based on the production value of the record or whatever. But uh, to these casual ears, <laughs> I think it sounds great and it's a great uh, collection of tunes and uh, I really enjoyed revisiting it the other night as I do from time to time. So Black Sabbath, Born Again,
1: it 1983. It has
0: plays for sure, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We got a lot to talk about. All right, today we are revisiting 1980, the year 1980. And you may ask why. And, well, we're about to spend some time telling you why. Uh, you could say that 1980 might have been the banner year for hard rock and heavy metal albums. Um i did a little research and looking over the list of albums that came out in that one year i can honestly say that if i could only have a record collection that was comprised of records that came out in 1980 i'd probably be okay with that yeah i mean the titles that came out in 1980 are absolutely unbelievable um I mean, you had Motorhead's Ace of Spades. You had ACDC's Back in Black as the Elephant in the Room. Um,
1: British Steel.
0: You you had British Steel from Judas Priest. Uh, You had uh, two albums from uh, Saxon, uh, uh, Wheels of Steel and Strong Arm of the Law. Both came out in 1980. Mm -hmm. You had the first Ozzy Osbourne solo album. Yeah. so I mean the list just goes on. We had uh Women and Children First from Van Halen. So obviously that's just you know the tip of the iceberg there but uh give us a, an album or two off of your list from 1980 the stand out albums to you.
1: Um I'll get to the albums uh, very very quickly. I want to talk about just a second Um, just for a second about how the end of the seventies is morphing into this new decade and the bands that had been working really hard that we talk about all the time on this show that had basically created what became hard rock and heavy metal, you know, ACDC and, and, um, and Led Zeppelin, and Rush, and Black Sabbath, and Alice Cooper, and even Queen, and it goes and goes and goes and goes and goes that, so this, you know, from, I can even start in 70 and go all the way to 80. So 10 years is really not that long of a time for music to, like, basically regurgitate and morph into what it was by the time 1980 came around. Yeah. Um, the things that, that were happening in 79 and 80 are almost like they belong together because Kiss put out, uh, Dynasty, which some people call their disco album. Right. Who could say... The Rolling Stones put out Emotional Rescue, and that was their disco album. Queen put out The Game, and that could be their disco album. But, you know, let's face it, that Emotional Rescue and uh, I Was Made for Loving You and um, Another One Bites the Dust, those songs were all over the radio because of the ilk and the power of uh, dance music and the bg's even though the bg's don't claim disco they just are trying to write good songs yeah not trying to be a disco band um, which is arguable i guess but they weren't and i believe them <laughs> so it's <laughs> whatever it's up to you right so the point so many things happening right then and there um, The First Iron Maiden Yes uh, um, With Judas Priest's um, Point of Entry Um, You know, these are bands That have already started to You know, Judas Priest had already established Itself in America And had done gigs with Led Zeppelin And they had done You know, toured the, all over Pretty much worldwide by By the time 1980 came around yeah, and they were they were on a they were on a roll, um, and Iron Maiden was just getting going. Yeah, when Priest toured uh, the states that year, or maybe it was eighty. I think it was eighty. Um, Iron Maiden supported them. Yeah, on that tour. So when you just think about that tour by itself, and then you think about Back in Black was out. And, yeah. they were, and, they, and ACDC was already established in America. And yeah. they were coming over here with a new singer. Um bon Scott died in February of 80. And it's interesting how quickly Back in Black sort of gained power and sort of took over in 1980. I mean, that exploded, it was bigger than. Heading out to the highway, you know, it was bigger than. Yeah. I, I, I'd say it was uh, bigger than. Uh, well, it was bigger than Iron Maiden. Oh right. yeah. Bigger than. Yeah. Than, uh, Phantom I mean, General it's it,
0: it, it it's still bigger than ninety nine point nine percent of the albums <laughs> ever released. <laughs>
1: right, right. It, it, it's not. It's not a lone soldier either, but it's probably like you. Do you, you say it's the, it's the elephant in the room?
0: Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one kind of the best-selling albums of all time, and one yeah, of the greatest true. albums of all time.
1: Kind of the king. Uh, yeah. It's
0: like y'all. I, I almost don't even want to spend too much time on it because it's been it, it's been so well documented and discussed. But you can't have you can't talk about the year nineteen eighty and hard rock and heavy metal no. and not mention Back in Black. No. And and there is still something like when I go back to that album, um, I I try to listen to it with my with my 14 year old years, because I remember when that needle hit the groove and I heard the opening of Hell's Bells, it was just like ACDC was so menacing to me compared to what I had been listening to. Up until that point, I was obsessed with Kiss. And then um, Back in Black, I remember it Uh, being on the radio, it was a new album in 1980, and it was my first exposure, honestly, to ACDC because of my age. You know, I I wasn't listening to rock and roll when, you know, Dirty Deeds came out the first time or when Let There Be Rock was a brand new album. So Back in Black was my introduction. And that same year, uh, Van Halen's Women and Children First came out. And so right then and there in 1980 all of a sudden kiss was now taking a back seat for the first time since i ever since i started buying music they were untouchable until i heard acdc and van halen and it's because to me those bands in the case of acdc was just more ominous and menacing and dangerous and van halen was just more party wild and party yeah it was a little more and of course you had Eddie Van Halen ripping on guitar but uh those two albums yeah, they're, alone
1: there there we don't need to tell people how different Van Halen and ACDC are
0: but right but right. they're
1: still on the same team uh yeah retro- retrospectively
0: yeah and those are those are like two of the the blockbusters that came out in 1980 but if mm-hmm. you um, you know, the first Ozzy Osbourne record, I mean, what, what was anyone expecting from Ozzy Osbourne? He was washed up and done. He was over and, and wouldn't have surprised anyone if he was dead. And he comes roaring back with the Blizzard of Oz album and went on to have a career even more successful than he had with Black Sabbath.
1: I've said uh, it before. He's chosen one. It's chosen the guy. He's a golden, golden boy. And- yeah.
0: And yeah. you
1: talk and you think about where he's from and you, you think, how did this happen to this guy? You know, so yeah. just had written him off as a loon, you know, he's just going to be an alley cat, you know, yeah. just hanging down with, you know, getting drunk with the boys in Birmingham all day, you know, in, yeah. you know, in jail by morning.
0: And obviously, really, obviously that album introduced us to Randy Rhodes, which is a whole nother, you know, thing. Yeah. So, um that happened th-
1: so fast because black sabbath never say die was a 79 they toured yeah nine that record and like in 1980 just happened and there he is with crazy train out. it's pretty unbelievable how fast
0: he turned it around and meanwhile his former band is out with heaven and hell in the same year 1980 out in 80 so they got uh, to work another amazing album that came out in 1980 um So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the albums that came out in 1980 that are uh, defining albums of what is known as the new wave of British heavy metal because we all know that that was a huge influence on what became Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer and bands like that. But 1980 saw the debut release of uh, Def Leppard's first album iron maiden's first album uh girl school's first album angel witch first album
1: yep someone Uh, did the research there's a uh, let's just call it out someone did a lot of great research and there is a wiki page solely about hard rock and metal that we are sort of like borrowing uh snippets from to throw up in the air here and and, uh, and talk about. And so whoever did that um, really made uh, sure the world, if they wanted to know about the relevance of 1980, it's all right there. There's so much more, though. I, 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 uh, sorry that I interrupted you. I wanted to bring up some important thing, or at least a couple of little things. John Bonham died in 1980. Right. So Led Zeppelin was technically disbanding. Right. So you've got um uh Ian Gillen put out a solo record in nineteen eighty.
0: Yeah. Which would have yeah. been
1: just a couple of years prior to him working with Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath on Born Again.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um Dennis Stratton leaves Iron Maiden in nineteen eighty and was replaced by Adrian Smith. Right. Peter Chris left Kiss.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um and kiss released unmasked in uh 1980 which is we're, we were so so here's some contrast for you the the point of the show is to point out all the the essential great albums that came out in 1980 uh, and you and I both being kiss fans unmasked is in the mix um probably not their finest hour um But uh, it came out in 1980, nonetheless. And uh, there's a
1: few songs, man. That that yeah, I can I can pull out and go, man. That's a good tune.
0: Here's another one, uh, an album that came out in 1980, uh, "Metal Rendezvous" by Crocus, and yes, it was great record. It's a great record. It's the first album uh, that they did with Mark Storacci on on lead vocals. And uh, obviously, they went on to bigger and better things after that album with Mark as the lead singer. But that album alone has Bedside Radio, Tokyo Nights, Heat Strokes. I mean, those are classic, classic Crocus songs that they probably still play to this day if if they were out touring. So very important album. um, And probably the foot in the door in America, probably not quite. It wasn't, you know, one vice at a time, and, and Headhunter were their big breakthroughs. But that was the album where the seeds started to germinate because they had Mark Storacci on vocals, and the sound was starting to develop into what uh, what became sort of the classic Crocus sound. Yeah, so I wanted to um, bring that one up.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great record. Uh, I I was in a band that covered Heat Strokes, actually. In great song a, in '81, so that record would have been fairly brand new. Yeah, uh, when, when I was covering that song, um, interesting, interesting enough. Uh, British Steel, uh, co- I covered almost every song on British Steel, like the, you know, the two weeks after it came out. You know, it, <laughs> yeah. it just really this uh, huge bonk on top of the head 1980 there's just too many records to to mention um except put out a record uh i don't believe it to be their first i believe it to be their second i'm a rebel right right 80 and that it's really starting to shape up as the genesis of a lot of things that that end up uh either being talked about on talk louder or, or or what's, hap- what's going to happen down the line to shape uh, a rock fan's ears
0: and taste. Right, right. And uh, that song, uh, the title track, I'm a Rebel, there's a connection to ACDC.
1: I would hope so. You
0: yeah. Should. it's. Uh, I, I think the guy that engineered that record or produced that record is the oldest brother of the young brothers, Angus, Malcolm, and George. Right. A- and so there is an ACDC connection. And right. I've heard that uh that A C D C actually recorded a version of that song and to this day it remains unreleased and lost in a vault somewhere. But yeah. if that if that, if that's out there, that'd be interesting to hear Bon that Scott.
1: Some, that's some really good lore because i've never heard that
0: before that's that's awesome yeah uh, mm. i he, got one for you yeah, uh yeah, give it to me here, here's another one that came out in 1980 uh scorpion's animal magnetism and one of my favorites it's a great one and, and here's the thing with that album i think it's a really good album but much like uh Judas Priest's point of entry got kind of lost between British Steel and Screaming for Vengeance. I feel like Animal Magnetism got lost between Love Drive and Blackout. It kind of—it's it, it, the album that came out in between those two albums that are considered classics. And then there's that one, like the, the the baby album in the middle that is really worth your attention. But it, it wasn't like the next logical step. It was kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's, to me, Animal Magnetism is, is, I don't want to call it the forgotten album because it's certainly no. not. Um, but, I've got a
1: promo poster framed in my office right behind me. Which is quite
0: rare. An oh, really? Animal Magnetism promo poster, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. I think I've seen that at your place. Uh-huh. But that's a that's a great album. I mean, it's solid all the way through. But I think oh, yeah. people, I think people tend to make the jump from Love Drive immediately to Blackout and maybe, maybe overlook Animal Magnetism. And uh, it's definitely not an album that should be overlooked. It's it's right. and. May, it's- and and maybe that's just my perspective. Maybe people are going, you're crazy. It's my favorite album. I listen to it all the time. Maybe well, true.
1: I, I, I'm kind of one of those people because I, I love it. Uh, the interesting thing about that is it's another sort of changing of the guard. I believe that's might be the first record with Matthias Jobs on it. Uh, and Michael might have played a song or two on that record, much like Love Drive. No, it was Love Drive. So it's Love Drive... Animal Magnetism is where the Michael and Matthias are kind of making friends on the guitar.
0: On uh, the Love Drive is the one that Matthias showed up on Love Drive, and You're that's right. that's the album where Michael made some guest appearances. By Animal Magnetism, it's Matthias, all Matthias. Matthias okay. was strictly yeah. the new guitar player. Yeah. Uh, but it's a great album. Yes. Uh, make, make it real is one of my favorite Scorpion songs. Uh, they still do it live. I've heard them do it in recent years. Of course, that album has the zoo. Yes. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's a really great album came out in 1980. Um, Saxon, I want to talk about them for a minute because they put out two albums in 1980 and both of them are considered Classics. Uh, you got Wheels of Steel, and then just a few months later, you got Strong Arm of the Law. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, the album covers are similar. One's the white album, one's the black album.
0: Uh, strong Arm. Strong, yeah. Strong
1: Arm is the white record, and uh, Wheels. Oh, Wheels of Steel. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, the domestic release. I'm sorry, the domestic release of Strong Arm. There's a domestic which is a black cover. The original will be the white one.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. Not, that's right. And Wheels of Steel has the classic, the, the yeah. Eagle the eagle logo. Yep, the s-
1: but, Silver Eagle, yeah. Yeah.
0: <clears> but <throat> between those two albums, you've got the song Wheels of Steel. You've got the song 747. Uh, you've got the song Strong Arm of the Law. You've got Dallas 1PM. Uh, so uh, Heavy Metal Thunder. Those two uh,
1: records, you're just you th- these songs not,
0: are in their set list yeah that's They're still that's the, in their set list four was, years later or whatever that was the point that's i crazy. was gonna make i'm rattling off their current set list you know and, yeah, I, and it, I
1: get it i get it it's uh it's um it's amazing um to think about you know like how many decades later and these bands are still playing songs from their like third record
0: or their first, you know, if it came out in 1980. But yeah, they're still playing 1980. Yeah. If they put out an album in 1980, chances are that a few of those songs are still in the current set list because it's
1: definitely with Saxon.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, and Scorpions and uh, right. Def Leppard. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. Un- unfortunately, Def Leppard tends to neglect their first album
1: uh yeah that's too bad because much to my disappointment yeah yeah that's that's uh very much their new waiver british heavy metal roots uh yeah they were part of the you know the 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 phrase or whatever whatever you want to call it of uh you know the new waiver british heavy metal was actually coined in 1980 and it was uh, for an article that was talking about Angel Witch and Samson and I believe Saxon, maybe Iron Maiden as well, um, talking about this, uh, this new style of what hard rock was becoming um, and also borrowing the term heavy metal once again to just say, well, heavy metal is a global thing. Um, at least in, uh, in Europe and, uh, the British Isles and America, uh, at that point. Um, but I think that that's an interesting moment. Um, Saxon had already had maybe one or two records out before
0: 1980.
1: One. One. Okay. The first yep. record with the swordsman on the front.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Um, you know, it's my the the song everyone knows of that record is backs to the wall yeah which i hear them do in recent years they still do backs to the wall um which is crazy yeah the 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 connection here i mentioned samson that's bruce dickinson's uh you know band before iron maiden right um and we, we were talking about Def Leppard and and Angel Witch and these, uh, you know, I'll say phenomenal uh, genesis beginnings of something that is still like a, a coffee table book, you know, a conversation piece, um, a poster collection, a record collection, you know, uh, half a century later, almost, you know, and that's—it's it's like it's pretty mind-blowing, uh, staggering to me to to have all of this. Well, I joke useless information, but <laughs> it's not useless because it's it's literally changed fashion just by sound. It's changed fandom and collectors are addicted to the, you know, just, just collecting, just whatever these, you know, items, whether it be socks or shirts or buttons (laughs) or, you know, it's a phenomenon. It's crazy how the human brain has really taken on hard rock and heavy metal and, and has legions of fans that, that, need to know how the importance of 1980 and it it it's not so much maybe the peak of maiden and saxon and it's arguable that it would be the peak of it's the peak as much as it is the genesis and the beginnings of something that later on they would be the biggest in most incredible rock and metal bands to speak of
0: right, right
1: household household names. Yeah, it was never the plan.
0: Here's so. another one. Uh, here, speaking of that, uh, here uh, Head uh-huh. came out in 1980. Uh, yeah. What is it? Lightning, lightning to the nations. Yeah, or? To the nations, yeah. Uh, that album has "Am I Evil" on it, and of course, Metallica made that song into. You know, an arena anthem.
1: <laughs> well, they, and they took it, and they took it as uh, as bread for their babies, so to speak. They created a sound by 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 covering like seven. Okay, here's here's a funny. At the whiskey in '81, I think might have been their first gig right out of the garage. Metallica opens for Saxon and plays like six or seven diamond head covers. Yeah. Maybe a sweet savage song, let it loose and maybe one more cover song, maybe. Oh, they know. And they played hit the lights. Their only original song that was kind of finished. And it was the original lineup too, with, with Dave Mustaine, Lloyd Grant, Ron McGovney. And of course, Lars and James on Lars on, uh, James on lead vocals only but that right there is another moment that I mean we do Saxon is relevant to Diamond Head is relevant to all yeah. of the things that that we know and love and are in the soup yeah right now oh. that we're talking about um yeah. I to mention Girl ah I was uh, going to bring sheer, him up you yeah, to sheer, it. sheer greed came out yeah. in 80 now um, tell us about girl. I mean, I know, I, I know all about girl, but you tell us, uh, give everybody a rundown of, of, uh, casting who's, who's in girl and where are they now?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, girl was, uh, fronted by Phil Lewis, who has been the singer for LA guns for years and years and years, and um, years. and years <laughs> and is still the singer for LA guns to this day. Uh, so he's obviously made a name for himself, uh, well past girl, but he, girl was his start. Um, and, uh, his bandmate on guitar was Phil Collin, uh, who has been in Def Leppard for years and years and years and years <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and is still <laughs> in the band to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, that album, Sheer Greed, uh, couple interesting things there's a song on there called hollywood tease that ultimately uh was recorded by la guns when phil joined la guns so it's also on an la guns record and um uh, and they do a cover of do you love me by kiss from uh from the dynasty record that's also on that
1: Is oh, on destroyer
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. It's on
1: destroyer, and yeah, uh, written by Kim Fowley.
0: That's right, right. Uh, so yeah, that is 1980 again. A band called Girl, uh, and as the name suggests, they were uh, kind of glammy, and uh, so y- you could you could say that they might have also been a precursor to what became sort of the Hollywood hair metal scene for lack of better term.
1: Definitely. Uh, I don't I don't know that Girl ever toured the States. They may have done a tour over here, like a handful of dates. I don't know the history of Girl at all. I do know that there were weren't there a couple of brothers in the band too. Uh
0: yeah, I think you're right. Uh Lafferty or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something like Laffy that. Lafferty. Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 So there you uh, go. Yeah, that's, about,
1: that's kind of important. Uh, how about look, one of
0: your favorite okay. bands, Rush? They put out an album in 1980. Yeah. Uh, that would have been permanent Waves. Was it Permanent Waves? Uh-huh. Uh huh. What's what songs got, are on? Let
1: me, let me double check here. Yes, yeah, Rush. Permanent, permanent, waves. permanent Waves. That that's, is uh,
0: Spirit, Spirit of the Radio. radio. Yeah. 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 So another huge album, not only a, a huge album uh, for us fans, but it was a pretty pivotal album for Rush um, at, at that point in their career because it's kind of the album where they sort of streamlined their sound a little bit and and got away from every song on the album being some long, drawn-out epic. And they they started writing a little more shorter, punchier songs uh yeah hooks if you will am i am i right is that is that the album where they've
1: probably rushed it well spirit of radio is huge free will free will is on that record free will and spirit of radio were massive hits radio hits for what was known to be a prog band yeah um influenced by you know yes and uh uk and whoever you know uh uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra, and, yeah, yeah, and, and jazz, and and uh, and and Led Zeppelin, of course, too. But at the same time, it's the precursor to the the follow up record. Right after that was their magnum opus, which was Moving Pictures, pictures
0: yeah, which
1: and yeah. uh, literally right after that, yeah, right after that, which. In the, if you read, uh, if you see, you know, movies and documented footage or where they're talking about it and articles and even pundits writing about moving pictures and even uh, Neil Peart's words, it's where they find my words would be they figured out how to straddle the line of being what they're known for and having this new thing where they could be on the radio and have the yeah. best. Worlds at the same time. They figured it out.
0: Yeah, that was the album where they figured it out. That's Tom that's,
1: Sawyer. All you gotta say is Tom Sawyer. Red, that's, yeah,
0: Villa. yeah, yeah. And I, but I think uh, what was it the the album just before it, the one we were talking about in nineteen eighty, Permanent, Permanent Waves. Yeah, yeah that that, that sort of that sort of set the stage for for moving pictures. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, uh, again another. Huge album, very important album, came out in 1980. Um, uh, Bruce Bruce's band, Samson, had a record out. It
1: may have been their first release called Head On.
0: Samson. It's, it's the on. first album with Bruce on vocals. Okay. I think it was. I think it was their second album overall. It oh, may okay. have been their third, but it it's notable for being the first uh, to feature Bruce.
1: Yeah. And then to know that not very long after, I mean, just you could say a handful of months if you wanted. You know, it's like counting baby months, you know. Oh, how old is your child? Oh, like 20 months. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So 24 months. Yeah. By the the time he was doing Number of the Beast, it was like, (laughs) wait a second, I just saw you in Samson not long. You know, Yeah. that's how that was kind of, again makes 1980 relevant of how quickly things move in rock and rock and roll yeah. uh do you remember ever heard of a band this is kind of a deep cut here to talk about a band called grand prix
0: is that uh robin mccauley
1: yeah he wasn't an original member but
0: okay it's where i
1: first heard robin mccauley who ended up in michael schenker years later Uh, They, they, that was uh, the Grand Prix without Robin McCauley put out a record in 1980, but it was a, it took a couple of years for him to graduate into that band. And then uh, MSG's, uh, Michael Shanker, very first
0: record. As as soon as you brought up, or as soon as I brought up Robin McCauley, it got me thinking about Michael Shanker group because Robin obviously spent some years in the Michael Shanker group many years later, but uh, the debut album.
1: Yeah, in '80s, it was uh, Michael Shanker's first solo group uh, band with Gary Barden on vocals, who was there for years and years. He he made like two or three records with Michael uh, prior to uh, Robin McCauley,
0: which was more like mid '80s. Yeah, you know who the drummer was on that record?
1: On on which re- on the oh, Cosy Powell uh pal- no nah. on the first michael Schenker
0: group record that's not who i'm thinking of he was on the second one mm. i'm thinking of somebody different on the first one well you mentioned him in a past episode because he's the same guy that plays on sin after sin by judas priest
1: Oh, really? Is it Simon Phillips is on the first group
0: yes, record? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. He's well, on... That's,
1: that's pretty special.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I believe Don Airey uh, plays keyboards on that record, who uh, is probably most notable for playing with Ozzy Osbourne, but his his resume is pretty extensive as well. But yeah, and Gary Barden on vocals. So that first Michael Schenker album, the players on it are are pretty pretty exceptional.
1: Charted at number eight that summer. Uh, amazing. Uh, armed and Ready, Cry for the Nations, Into the yeah. Arena.
0: There you go. Love yeah. those
1: songs. Love, love those songs. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know this i feel like um i was just personal moment i feel like that year is when i was really starting to understand uh how to play my instrument and a lot of these records we're talking about and these in the lore that we're mentioning in between you know the the sprinkles right yeah um I was reading this stuff. I mean, the things I know now, I didn't know then, but there were parts of these things that I knew about 19, you know, that were happening by the time I got to Austin in later that year or early 81, whichever, and uh, I was really starting to figure it out. So I was, feel I feel like I was, uh you know shedding skin and becoming who i am in 1980 as well
0: yeah yeah
1: i really do do. um just when i go down i mean tigers of pantang put out their first record in 1980 it was only a couple years later or a year after that that i completely fell in love with tigers of Pantang specifically uh uh spellbound and crazy nights yeah Those were the records that had john sykes on them right it was kind of a step up in the in the they needed a shredding guitar player yeah really kind of stepped up the songs quite a bit yeah um i didn't really enjoy tiger's first record wildcat they had a different singer um they didn't have sykes uh right. but there's a couple of records that were really, really amazing. Kind of interesting footnote here is while Jess Cox, this original singer for uh Wild, uh the record called Wildcat, uh yeah. Tigers of Pantang, um uh John Deverell, who replaced him in Tigers, who was on Crazy Nights and Spellbound, not in the, that order specifically. John Deverall, who's a singer replaced jess cox had a band was in a band with phil campbell from motorhead
0: oh wow called persian risk oh yeah 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 sound familiar i, I know the name yeah yeah, yeah. yeah don't yeah. know
1: if they i mean maybe they put out a record but they were like a fledgling new wave of british heavy metal band
0: yeah and i'm yeah.
1: sure i'm sure lemmy knew all the all these guys
0: yeah <laughs> you know, all
1: these guys who is there someone lemmy didn't know that was a british band you know <laughs> yeah. yeah so I, I really uh need want to stop real quick and say this topic gets me excited
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I, I mean it's like i said at the top of the episode uh if i could only if 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 I could only have a record collection made up of albums that came out in 1980, I would be okay with that. Yeah. But There are so many great titles that came out in 1980. I can't think of another year where there were so many essential albums released in the span of 12 months. I, I just can't think of one off the top of my head. And we're, we're talking landmark albums here. I mean, Uh, Obviously, Back in Black, obviously the first uh, Ozzy Osbourne record, obviously Ace of Spades, uh, obviously Women and Children First, Um, you know, obviously Def Leppard's first record. Look what they became. I mean, uh, Iron Maiden's first album. I'd rather not. Yeah, <laughs> Touche.
1: I'd rather not. Yeah, uh, but I meant I, that as quick. Yeah, you're, you're on a you're on a roll, and once again, I want to like turn the faucet off for a second. <laughs> um, check this out. So there is this band that's from the Midwest, I think, and it's I don't need a fact check on it. I, I feel terrible that I should know because I actually was lucky enough to play um a festival in Germany with them a band called Manila Road yeah Manila Road is such a huge um topic in Germany they are one of those sort of Valhalla power metal meets new wave of British heavy, you know hard rock uh metal type of a um you know classic sounding sort of um I, I mean they could have been from germany they they were they're like uh they changed the way like there's there's not a German festival these guys didn't play uh yeah. Mark Sheldon passed away years ago now uh the the main guy, the singer guitar player guy, and he. Uh, they have people in Germany have shrines. They have Mark Sheldon shrines. Anyway, their first record came out in 1980, if I'm not mistaken. And I just wanted to say, uh, one more relevant moment. Uh, 1980 is just the fact that, you know, years years and years and years and years and years later, there's, and they were kids in 1980. So yeah, it's kind of just, it's crazy. Yeah. They would have been like an American budgie kind of a thing.
0: Right. Okay. Got totally you.
1: relevant in, in one way or another, but definitely in parts of Germany probably have flags raised right now that say, Long live Manila Road and mark the shark, Sheldon. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. What about uh, Thin Lizzy did something in 1980? Chinatown. Chinatown. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah. Yes, sir. That's one of my favorite Lizzy records.
0: I I knew that. So uh, a little bit of a different album because they brought in Snowy White Correct. on guitar to replace Correct. replace Brian Robertson or Gary yes. Moore or Brian Brian. Yeah, because so, they
1: had, uh, they had just done uh, uh, Jailbreak, I believe.
0: So no, that, they no, did was one bad after Reputation. Jailbreak bad that reputation no, that's early that's um early. so uh black rose
1: black yeah rose. that's gary moore yeah that's gary moore and i believe that would have been right after uh jailbreak well um not mistaken but chinatown is 1980 snowy white uh rumor has it he played in a version of pink floyd
0: he was a touring guitarist. He, wow. He, he never recorded with them, to my knowledge, but he did. He was a touring guitarist for Pink Floyd. Yeah. And that was a weird album for Thin Lizzy in some respects, because uh, as we mentioned, with with Snowy White on board, it was no longer the classic lineup, but it was still a very capable lineup, obviously. And it was sort of an album that. You know, you could argue it was it was Thin Lizzy a little past their prime, Uh, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that the the commercial success kind of dropped off at that time. But it's a really solid album. I love every song. Yeah, it's not the household name. Killer on
1: the loose. I love Killer on the loose. I love. We will be strong.
0: Yes. Yeah. um, Sugar blues. Yeah, there's a bunch uh, of
1: great stuff on
0: there, didn't I? Yeah, it's a great, it's a solid, solid record. Yeah. And uh, it, it it obviously gets overshadowed by some of the classic titles like, uh, you know, Jailbreak and Bad Reputation and, and Black Rose. But uh, a yeah, stand
1: up. Some of that might not even show up on a Greatest Hits if you found the Lizzie Greatest Hits, which is unfortunate.
0: Yeah, because it's a solid album. Yeah, a really um, good there's one. a
1: there's a little bit of a of a trivial moment that I feel like I brought up before in the movie in National Lampoon's
0: Vacation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, why am I laughing already? That Nash, that movie I'm, just I'm brings not, back. I'm not,
1: make, I'm not making this up. <laughs> uh, they go to like their weird cousin's house yeah they stop by the weird cousin's house i believe this is before they pick up aunt edna <laughs> or, or 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 no aunt edna's there and they have a picnic and the whatever and and they're anyway they they go to uh like uh can't remember the kids' names. Russ is the boy, and yeah. uh, Audrey. Audrey is the the daughter's name. She goes to the cousin's room, and the the cousin, the the blonde girl cousin or whatever, uh, is um, showing her a shoebox full of weed or something like that. They grew there on the farm or whatever. Right. And in the background that's not even that's not the important part. Who cares about that? The important yeah. part is in the background leaning up against like the vanity is Thin Lizzy Chinatown album cover.
0: No way. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and
1: the, maybe the edited for television version doesn't have that in it. Maybe uh but the oh, version wow. I have has Thin Lizzy Chinatown leaning against the vanity in the back.
0: Oh, I'll I'll have to look for that next time I watch that movie. You, never, may, never you may have that. to
1: watch it, a couple of versions of it to find
0: it. Yeah. But it's,
1: it's in the cousin's bedroom when they go to Randy Quaid's house <laughs> in the Midwest somewhere to pick up Aunt Edna. Wow! If wow. that makes any sense to you or anyone listening, no,
0: that's great. That's great stuff. That's yeah. that's good trivia. <laughs> well, that's that's the that's what nerds are made of. Yeah, right there. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, i I think we covered 1980 pretty well. I just wanted to uh, bring it to everyone's attention. If you weren't aware already, 1980, 1980 was a blockbuster year for hard rock and heavy metal. Some of the most essential albums of the genre uh were released in 1980 and uh things i mean we're
1: changing things were changing in 1980
0: yeah there were there it's pivotal and a lot of the uh, albums that we spoke of that came out in 1980 uh were the template and and blueprints for bands that came later um i don't think metallica would be the metallica we know if it wasn't for a handful of these albums that came out in 1980 that we mentioned Uh, today
1: notably notably ace of spades uh british steel diamond head diamond head lightning to the nations
0: angel witch
1: uh first angel witch record uh and you could go back to lars's deep purple fascination as just as much yeah, um, For the most part, I think the the Motorhead and the Priest and the Diamondhead were uh, very important to
0: just even two or three years worth of those. Future generations, meeting, absolutely.
1: Well, Metallica in particular meeting in Los Angeles and getting the first version of the band together, covering all those great old tunes um, that were just a couple of years old. And, yeah then, uh, you know, writing their own songs that were influenced by exactly what they were covering, which is how bands, that's how it works. Yeah. You, you you cover, you, you cover what you love. And next thing you know, you're being influenced by what you love, which is exactly what life should be about. Sure. Yeah,
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. We've covered 1980. Uh, I'm sure we left out a bunch of titles. I'm sure someone will bring it to our attention, but I do feel like we hit on some of the major ones. There's no denying the, the well, power we, and the importance. We,
1: we drug our feet a couple of times, but that's okay. The the year we made our point. We're sticking to it. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's uh, just important to bring up the things that we brought up, and uh, kind of, you know, uh, just kind of hit it a few more times and uh you know we'll we'll bring it up again all these all this stuff these bands these people these moments um you know uh, uh soldiers were lost um uh futures were gained you know
0: yeah it's like we said in our episode about martin birch uh whether we reference him directly or not uh his influence will come up numerous 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 times in future episodes of this show he uh, produced half the records we mentioned because we it can't be helped and much like uh we will reference some of the albums that came out in 1980 over and over and over and over again because 1980 was such a banner year for the type of music that we love amen Jason, my shot of rock and roll for you this episode is. uh, I want to take you back. You told me a story one time, and I I thought it was pretty funny. I don't remember it entirely, but uh, I'm sure this will trigger a memory for you. and And wanted you to share it with our audience. Um, There was a time when your band, Dangerous Toys, was on tour with the Cult. And if memory serves me, you told me that you had a day off and you and Ian Asbury from the cult and maybe some of your bandmates and some of his bandmates spent the day at Disneyland. Is that, is that accurate?
1: That's, that's very
0: close. Okay. Um, Fill in the blanks.
1: We were in Florida. It was, uh, like January late january of nineteen eight no 90 1990 uh it was a sonic temple tour yeah. um we started that tour at long beach arena new year's eve 89 so that puts it the time stamp correct on it so it would have been mid to late january we were in florida uh we had done, I think it was the night before, I think we were in Tampa or something. We uh so so Florida makes it Disney World. Okay. Right. Yeah, you, know, you got Jurassic Land, you got Jurassic World. You're <laughs> we in Jurassic World. No. Uh Disney World, Florida. Okay. Um in anyway, Lars was at one of the shows in Florida. And that's just a sidebar. And so I got to say hi to him. Yeah. And then, uh, and then uh, it might have been the day after that show, like Tampa or something, that we went to, uh, Disney World. And, uh, I used to ride on, uh, Ian's bus quite a bit. Um, not my band, just me. Um, and, uh, you know, Ian was married. Uh, and so his wife, Um, her name, he's not married to her anymore, but I can't remember her name. Um, she was super nice. And then he had like a little bit of an entourage. He had this young guy, um, front, an English guy. And then he had, we had a couple of English guys, but one of them was a big old bloke. And that was security. And I can't remember his name. doesn't matter i'm i don't want to dilute the story any more than my memory already is (laughs) Um, but so nice we're having a great time i I want to say that you know jason what were you doing on ian's bus well i i think that that he and his wife thought it would be a good idea for me to 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 be around um after the show on the bus, riding to the next gig with Ian because I think he was trying to not drink. Yeah, and I don't drink and right. was drinking, so I was a good influence. As right. to he would have been hanging out with anybody else in my band, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it would have made him want to break out the whiskey or something, you know. So, <laughs> um <laughs> we go to he you know he says we got a day off you're going you're going to ride with us we're all me, you and my people were going to disney world tomorrow i'm like yay that sounds awesome my treat you know kind of thing the what i what i remember the most this is a little unfortunate that i remember the, what i remember <laughs> the most is going through the the turnstile you know buying our tickets we're walking into disney world And Ian's got, Ian's wearing shorts. Try to picture that. Ian's wearing (laughs) shorts, for one. He's got that hair down to his ass. And he's wearing, I think he's wearing a cowboy hat, which is sounds right. But shorts and a cowboy hat doesn't sound right. (laughs) Uh, But he is wearing shorts. I do remember that. Because it's hot. It's Florida. Yeah. And um, we had a blast, just so you know. But getting in was memorable because he's got a bottle of water. Right? Uh Uh-huh. And he's the only one out of all, like, four or five of us. That's all it was. You know, security guy, big guy, little guy, me, the wife, maybe one more person. Right. And they won't let him in with the water bottle. (laughs) And that was new to him. Like, you can't bring in your own refreshments. We want you to pay $10 for a, you know, to sip on the water fountain. Right, right. Well, you need to you need to buy a ten dollar Coca Cola, you know. Right. And you get a Mickey Mouse hat with it. Whatever.
0: Right? <laughs> I so doubt it.
1: They won't let him bring in the bottle of water.
0: Wow. It,
1: it's pissed. <laughs> I hadn't seen him react that way yet. You know he's he's telling them off he's getting in their face god made water he's telling shit like that and i'm like you know i kind of don't blame him you know it was, a, it was a it was a pretty nice bottle of water it wasn't like a little bottle of water it was a you know it was a, he was gonna suck on it all all the whole day you know yeah yeah anyway so that was interesting and it was just i didn't expect him to go off on them just because they wouldn't let him bring that in yeah. And I wasn't going to be the one, you know, hey, you know, Ian, you can't bring that into, you know, Disney World. They right. want, you know. I didn't want to be the, the, the yeah. nerd that goes, you know, they're not going to let you bring that shit in there.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: so I didn't say shit. And then, you know, that happened. Um, <laughs> another funny thing about that day is not long after we got in there, um, there was some people that were at the show the night before. At Disney, at Disney World. <laughs> and uh, Ian had his hair pulled back. You know, he had it pulled back. So he wasn't... And, and wearing shorts and not leather bell bottoms and Indian gear or whatever, right? Right. He didn't really... You know, I, I mean, I'm hanging out with Ian Asprey, you know, and, and we're cool. We're chummy and th- we're having a great time and we're at Disney World and this is a black... And there's these fans come up, and they, they have me sign autographs, and Ian's standing right next to me. <laughs> and they didn't ask him for for any signatures. They and he's him. He's, he's, and he's right there next to me, and he's he's making fun of me. He's, like, whispering kind of in my ear, you, you want me to sign that for you? You know, the, whatever, <laughs> I don't remember exactly what he was saying, but he was, he was kind of rooting tooting me
0: right there next, next yeah. to me. He's like a, Give me a hard time. Don't you yeah. know I'm the headliner? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, what are you doing signing that shit? You yeah. know, was, and I thought it was awkward. You know, yeah. it was just weird for me, you know. Um, but anyway, th- that was cool. good times. And I'll never forget that. It's a pretty, pretty golden moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, who gets to say they went to Disney World with Ian Asbury? That's that's awesome. <laughs> oh, it was great when they when they
1: came through uh, when the Colt came through again uh, on the same tour. They the toys weren't with them. It was Tora Tora had replaced us, and that's that's fine, whatever. And um, Ian wanted to go to a record store, and I was I was I was like, well, I'm with my friend, and he's just got a pickup truck, and he's like, I don't care, We're, I'll ride in the back. So, dude, <laughs> me and my buddy are in the front cab of this little Toyota pickup truck, and Ian Asbury from the Cult is just hanging on for dear life, <laughs> riding in the back. No, nope. no camper shell or anything. Just hold, hold on for dear life in the back of this pickup truck. And we took him to Waterloo Records. <laughs> that was the next. story awesome. Asprey, story that I had, yeah,
0: story, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. So that's pretty
1: much all I got. It was they were very nice to us on that tour.
0: Oh, that's awesome! That's fantastic. I mean, like I said, who gets to spend a day at Disney World with Ian Asbury, so good on you, man.
1: The uh, the shot of rock that I have for you is, uh, uh, much like me, you probably have more books than you can read. Um, I have too many books uh, about, you know, my favorite subject— And I, I just don't read very often I'm it's, I'm, I'm still only, I've still got about a third left of the Halford book and I got that for Christmas. Oh my God,
0: dude. Yeah, I'm slow,
1: but, (laughs) uh, I've also been busy as well, but what is the, I wanted to ask you, what's the last book that you read? It doesn't have to be like a new one or what's the last sort of rock doc kind of a uh, biography type thing that you've
0: read the last uh book that i read uh was actually called lemmy and oh. uh it was written by mick wall who is a famous rock and roll journalist who's done uh uh he made his name in the magazines i believe he wrote for kerrang um <clears throat> but he's done uh, a number of really good books Um, But he did one called Lemmy, and I was interested in it because, number one, Mick uh, is a a knowledgeable writer who, over the years, has gained tremendous access to his subjects. So he's not just doing research from a distance. When he's talking about – when he's writing a book about Lemmy, it's because he partied in the hotel room with Lemmy for half of the – tour you know and then well he's writing the book that's research yeah exactly right he probably expensed it all too oh yeah (laughs) but um i also was interested in it because i read lemmy's autobiography which is called white line fever Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact your band dangerous toys is mentioned in that book that's correct um and i remember thinking I was kind of bummed out on white line fever. It was a, it was a good enough read, but I was expecting that a book about someone who's such a character, uh, I guess I was expecting it to be a little more juicy. Um,
1: a lot more tumble. Yeah.
0: A lot more dirt, a lot more insanity. Uh, and it was, I felt like it was fairly even keeled. Um, Well, he
1: needed needed a book like that just as much as he needed, like, a road dog story.
0: Yeah, and because it was his autobiography, I figured that's the way he wanted to present himself. So, okay, that's fine. Um, But the Mick Wall book is more of a fly on the wall, uh, again, no pun intended. I feel like we say that a lot on this show. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, It's the language. It's basically Mick Wall writing about lemmy from the perspective of number one a rock journalist a, a, a very uh well-known and highly credentialed rock journalist but number two a dude who's along for the ride i mean he's on the yeah. tour bus he's in the hotel rooms he's backstage he's partying until 4 a.m with the band i mean he's getting all the good stuff you know yeah and uh I felt like that book was a little better paced. Uh, It it, it starts off a little slow getting through the Hawkwind stuff, but once they finally get to the Motorhead stuff, the ball starts rolling. And uh, I got to say, I kind of liked it better than the White Line Fever book. So um, I check that out. Yeah, I would recommend it. It's pretty good. Uh, I liked it better than White Line Fever and it's Lemmy and it's, it's sort of a it's a firsthand glimpse into the life of Lemmy from a guy who was actually there and uh, has all the great stories to tell and doesn't mind telling them. So it's got a red cover. It's got a Lemmy's silhouette on the front, and it's just okay. called Lemmy. And it's written okay. by written by Mick Wall. So worth Excellent. checking out. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. All right, man. I think that does it for another episode. Uh, I think we should uh, sign off and save some more for next time. This is Metal Dave Glessner along with my co-host Jason McMaster signing off on another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody.